Good morning. We now join a live Bible study from St. Paul's Lutheran Church in De Pere, Missouri. Good morning and welcome to the Bible class at St. Paul's De Pere. We greet all of you in the room today and we also greet all of those who are listening to us on KFUO. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Gracious God and Father, we give thanks to you for the many gifts that you supply to us, but especially for the gift of your word. Your word which makes us wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. We pray today that your Holy Spirit might be at work in your word and that you would open our minds and our hearts to the truth of that word, that we might hear it, believe it, inwardly digest it, apply it to our lives, and find great comfort and joy in it. So bless this time of Bible study as we come in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Here at St. Paul's, we've got things kind of uh, twisted around because of the death in Tanner Wade's uh, family. And he was scheduled to be preaching today, but we changed things around. The lessons that are read in church today are the same lessons that are supposed to be read next Sunday. The Bible study is for the lessons next Sunday. You're going to hear, if you haven't heard the word today in church, you're going to hear it again today in Bible class. The Old Testament lesson is... Genesis chapter 15, verses 1 through 6. The story of Abram, or Abraham as we know him. He's one of the great heroes of the faith, as we'll hear later on as we study Hebrews chapter 11. But while he is known as a hero of faith, we also hear that he had all kinds of weaknesses, and doubts, and fears. And so what does it mean to believe? Why, why can we call him a hero of faith if he had all of these issues to deal with? To really understand Abram, we need to go back to the story of his call in Genesis chapter 12. Remember, he was living a comfortable life in the land of Ur of the Chaldeans, Babylon. The word of the Lord came to him and said, Abram, I want you to leave your country, your kindred, your father's house, and go to a land that I will show you. Leave the foreign gods that your ancestors worship. There's only one true God. Come and believe in me. Go to this land that I'll show you, and I'll make you a great nation. And I'll bless you so that you will be a blessing to all the other nations of the earth. And Abram went. Now, looking around the room, it, it's likely that at this time, Abram was somewhere around 75 years old. And if you're not there, some of us are pushing 75 years old. We're at a point in our lives where things are kind of narrowing down and we, we seek comfort. We like the familiar. We want to stick with what we've got. Imagine what it must have been like for Abram to say, okay, 75-year-old man, I want you to pack it all up and leave absolutely everything that's familiar to you. I want you to forget about all the other gods that you and your ancestors have worshipped, and I want you to come and worship me. And Abram left. Now, Abram, this hero of faith, as we hear about in the chapters between 12 and 15, wasn't always a role model. There were times when he kind of stretched the truth. We won't call him a liar, but he wasn't always up front with people. There were times 
when he passed his wife off as his sister in order to save his own skin. He did it twice. Then, you know, he had this promise of, of an ancestor, and, and he became impatient, and he decided to take things in his own hand. And so he had relations with his slave, Hagar, and bore a son, Ishmael, and all the problems that that caused because Sarai became jealous. And so Abram just dumped him off in the wilderness. Is this the kind of man we want to hold up as an example? The hero of faith? So it's obvious that there were times when he grew impatient, times when he doubted, times when he was afraid. And yet he's called a hero of faith. In the chapters just before our, our lesson, um, there's, there's the account of Lot and how Abram had to go and rescue Lot and how he was under political pressure from a, a group of kings who occupied the land that God had promised to give to him. And so there was all this political intrigue. And the king of Sodom offered him all kinds of the, the bounty of the warfare that was fought. And he said, no, I'm, I'm not going to take that. I'm going to stick with my God. And so you got this tremendous background of this man who's up and down in faith. And then we come to today's lesson, Genesis 15, verses 1 through 6. After these things, after all of that had transpired, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I'm your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Fear not. How many times in Scripture does God repeat those words to us? Fear not. Hear it over and over in the Old Testament. We hear it in the New Testament. We hear it to the, the shepherds. Uh, God's word is don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Oftentimes when people are in a state of turmoil and don't know what to think or what to do or what to believe, the first word is fear not. I am your shield and your reward shall be very great. I am your shield. In all of those political battles that you're fighting, with all of those other kings in the land, don't be afraid. I'm your shield. I'm going to protect you. And your reward is going to be great. I am your reward, in a sense, is what he's saying. Abram had just refused the spoils of war from the king of Sodom, and now God is saying, because you've been faithful, your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Abram knew that God had blessed him. There was no doubt in his mind about that. He could look back on his life and see it was a wise choice to leave or I've been richly blessed. I've got flocks and herds and all kinds of things going on. But the one thing I want most of all, God, that son, you still haven't fulfilled that promise. I want that son. You ever heard yourself praying like that? Lord, you have so richly blessed us, but there's this one thing. I want it. I want it now. Well, 
It takes a lot of gumption, but remember, Abraham had a promise, a promise of a descendant. It's going to happen. But he's growing impatient. Lord, the one thing, I still don't have it. When am I going to get it? Well, as, as we all do, maybe there's a plan B. Maybe it's God's will that I adopt one of my servants, Eleazar. That was the custom in the day. And I'll make him the heir. And that's the way the promise is going to happen. Every time we try to take things into our own hand, instead of clinging to the promise of God, we're going to get ourselves in trouble. And that's where he is. Abraham isn't happy about the situation. Because it really wasn't his bloodline. This, this servant, Eleazar, was going to be the end of Abraham's line. And any man who had been promised descendants wouldn't be happy with this at all. And so he's, he's whining, he's complaining. Is it okay to do that if we're people of faith? <laughs> oh, sure, we do it all the time, don't we? And yet he's a hero of faith. So how does God answer his prayer? Behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. We look at the power of God's word. Remember, that's what, what stands behind all of this. In chapter 12, it was the word of God that came to Abraham, and that powerful word of God convinced him to pack it all in and go. It was every time that Abraham left go of that word of God that he got himself in trouble. And so once again, it's the word of the Lord that comes to him. And assures him once again, no, it's not plan B. It's still the way it always was. My promise to you still stands, even though it may not seem like it at the time. You're going to have your own son. And then to convince him, he took him outside and he said, now look up at the sky. Y'all are city folks. And at nighttime in the city, we don't see many stars, only the bright ones. Have you ever been out in the country in the middle of the night, 25, 30 miles away from any uh, artificial lights whatsoever and looked up at the night sky? Millions upon millions of stars. It, it's just an awe-inspiring kind of thing. Lord said to Abram, now look up at the sky. And I want you to count those stars if you're able to count them. That's how many descendants you're going to have. Imagine what this would have done for Abram. Every night as he sat outside his tent and looked up at the night sky, there was this visible sign. The promise was going to come true. 
God assured him and reassured him and reassured him once again. And every night that visible sign was there. My word to you is true. Cling to my word, Abraham. And so, verse 6 says, he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Here is a key verse in all of scripture. It's repeated over and over again. Abraham believed. God counted it to him as righteousness. So if if you had to define faith based on this word, believe, based on this story alone, what is faith? Trust in the promises, clinging to the promises. There's a, a, a... a neat thing that, that happens here, the Hebrew word that is used is, is the same word as, as we hear, amen. In other words, Abraham said, amen, to the promise of God. Amen. It shall be so. It's the word that Jesus used over and over. We, we you know, often translate it, truly, truly, I say to you, amen, amen, is what Jesus actually said. It shall be so. Abraham believed. He said, Amen to the promise of God, and and it was so. Faith, as we'll see in the next chapter, has, has something to do with looking into the future and being so convinced of what's going on in the future that we can say, it's happening right now. It's it's really true. We use the, the word amen in our worship services. I want you to to think about how often we use that word and look for it in in worship next time you're you're in the service. The little word amen. We used to tack it on to all of our hymns. We don't do that very much anymore. But we have the confession of sins. And we come to the absolution. And you're, you're announced that God has forgiven you all your sins in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what does the congregation say? Amen. It shall be so. It's happened. It's real. My sins are forgiven. We come to a time of prayer. We lay all of our concerns out before God, and the congregation responds, Amen. It's true. It shall be so. We believe it. We confess our faith in the words of the creed. And how does every creed end? Amen. I believe it. It's true. It's real. I'm convinced. Oftentimes when people take communion, I do it and, and I, I've watched other people do it as, as I distribute communion to them. Put the bread in their hand and say, the body of Christ, and they respond visibly, verbally, amen. This is the body of Christ for you. Amen. It shall be so. So Abram simply said, amen, to the promise of God. And now he lived as though it was was actual fact. It was going to happen. It was real for him right now. So what is faith? It's saying, amen. Lord, it's it's real. It's happening. It's going to happen. It's a fact. And then to live our lives in such a way as as though we already knew. We already had it. It's that real for us. That's what faith is. 
Now, here's, here's Abraham going through all of these struggles in life, and all he had to do was say amen to the promise of God, and God said, I count it as righteousness. It's enough. In the eyes of God, that simple action of taking God at his word, believing his promises, that's righteousness. You sin, you doubt, you're afraid, I forgive you, you're still my kid. You can still be a hero of faith, even in the midst of all of that. Any questions about the Old Testament reading? Amen. Let's, let's move on to the epistle, which is one of those great chapters of the faith. And, and here is, here's the standard definition of faith, but it's not really a definition of faith. It's more a, a description of faith. Here are examples of faith. There are 17 heroes in the Old Testament that are included in, in this chapter. It covers the time from Genesis through the book of Joshua and points to examples of people who lived by faith. And we hear those words, by faith, repeated over and over again, almost to the point where it becomes monotonous, but it's trying to get through our thick skulls. This is what faith does for you. Now, the Hebrew Christians were, were facing all kinds of difficulties. They were being persecuted for the faith. In times of persecution, there's always fear. There's always doubt. There's always the temptation to go back to the way things used to be. And Hebrews is writing to these people saying, you know, look at your Old Testament heroes. And they would have all known. They would have been familiar with, with the stories of all these, these heroes. Look at them as examples of what faith can do for you in this time of testing. Because of the promise which God has made to you as well. And so it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old receive their commendation. It's the assurance, or it's being made sure. It's a solid confidence. Again, it brings the future into the present as though it were happening right now. Things are happening in such a way that they're, they're, they are just that real for us too. A synonym, the assurance, the conviction of things not seen. We've got to believe that there's a whole lot more going on around us and what, what we see and what we know. More than what we can experience on our own. There's a, a spiritual world. There are, are things that we can't explain. There are miracles that are happening. We can't see it, but we have the conviction of things that are not seen. And so, what are the things that you hope for? And what are the things that you don't see? We hope for forgiveness. We hope for eternal life. We hope for all of those things. Are those as real for you today as if it was already happening? 
You see how powerful faith can be, the impact it can have on your life? If you were absolutely assured, certain, that salvation is real, and it's yours right now today. What don't you see? Well, we weren't there to see the creation of the world, but we, we believe there's a world around us, and that it was created by God, as we'll see in a few minutes. We believe that Jesus died on a cross, although none of us there were there to experience it. We believe the word that's given to us, although we weren't involved in that process of inspiration and it's been passed on to us generation after generation. There are a lot of things that we hope for and a lot of things that we don't see. And faith has to do with all of that and giving us this certainty as we live our lives. So how does faith then impact? Let's look at the Old Testament heroes. And let's see how their faith impacted them. Verse 3, by faith, the word appears 18 times. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. He goes back to the very first words of Scripture. What's the foundation? Where did it all begin, this faith? In that powerful word of God. He simply said, let there be, and there was. And we can see a world all around us, but it was made out of things that were not seen, that did not exist. We use the, the Latin expression, creation ex nihilo, which means from nothing. And we can't even begin to wrap our minds about that. What do you mean, from nothing? But that's what we believe because the word of God. And all this powerful word of God, had, it, it had to be spoken, and it was done. Think about the power of God's word in your life. Creation, starting of scripture. Then, verse 4, by faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The story of Cain and Abel is in Genesis chapter 4. You remember that, that Cain was a farmer and Abel was the rancher. And the time came for them to both bring their gifts before God. We don't know exactly what Cain brought, but Abel brought his gift as well, portions of what they did, portions of their lives, and Cain offered his sacrifice, and Abel offered his sacrifice, and God decided that Abel's sacrifice was to be commended. Was it because it was an animal instead of vegetable? Why did God accept the one and not the other? God knew the heart of the two givers. There's, there's no other explanation. God knew what was in their hearts. And God accepted Abel's sacrifice. Cain became jealous. First murder took place. Cain killed Abel. But Abel was the one who was commended by God. And as it says, his voice still speaks. It's the heart of a, a giver that still speaks across the ages. What does it mean to believe? 
It means to trust God and to give to, back to God a portion of what he's given to us with a joyful heart. It's the way we live our lives each day. That absolute confidence it all comes from God and that he supplies us every day with what we need. Here's a story you don't hear very often. Verse 5, by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. The story of Enoch takes about four verses of scripture. Genesis chapter 5, verses 21 through, through uh, 24. We know for certain that he was the father of Methuselah, the grandson of Methuselah was Noah. We know that um, Enoch lived 365 years. He was taken up by God bodily into heaven. He walked with God. And while Genesis doesn't say anything at all about his faith, Hebrews adds the comment. He pleased God. How did he please God? He believed. Without faith, it's impossible to please God, and so it's obvious then that Enoch must have believed because he pleased God. This is one of the, the controversial and important passages of Scripture. These last words especially... For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Can an unbeliever do good works? Not in the eyes of God. I mean, we, we, we look at donors today who give millions of dollars to build hospitals. And they do it because they're wealthy people and it's a, an income tax deduction. And the community rejoices because of the good work that this person has done in donating. What does God think of that? Is that pleasing in the eyes of God? Well, on the one hand, yes, God wants us to take care of our neighbor. But does it, does it add any credit to the person? Does God count it as righteousness? No. There's, a, there's a, a great old story. Two little kids playing out in the yard. It's in the spring. The dandelions are blooming. The one little kid, the neighbor kid, picks a bouquet of dandelions and takes it into the lady of the house and says, I just picked this bouquet of flowers for you. And the lady of the house looks at them and says, oh, thank you very much and then basically goes into the back room and throws them in a trash can because they're weeds. The other little boy is her son. He picks a bouquet of, of dandelions, takes them in and says, Mommy, I brought you a bunch of, of flowers. And she smells them. Oh, they're beautiful. Now she gets out a vase and waters them and puts them in the middle of the, the island so that everybody can see the gift that her child has brought to her, an act of her child's love. You see the difference? 
An unbeliever who has no relationship with God does something, and yet it's good in the eyes of the world. But when you, as a child of God, do a good work, something that benefits your neighbor, God is pleased. And so, without faith, it's impossible to please God, but in faith, those good works that we do are indeed pleasing in the eyes of God. Enoch was one who pleased God because he believed. He was a child of God and the great-grandfather of Noah by faith. So in chapter, uh, verse 7, we come to Noah. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. The story of Noah is in Genesis chapter 6. Noah hadn't seen a flood like this. We in St. Louis have experienced two 500-year floods in the last couple years. But Noah had never seen a flood like this, a flood that would cover the entire earth and destroy all living things. What could possibly make him believe? What could possibly make him go to work building an ark? He had the word of God that he believed. And so he, he set about, and it took him, I think, 120 years to build this boat. Now, Bill Cosby made a career out of telling that story. Imagine what the neighbors must have thought. As year after year after year, he's out there building this boat, this, this gigantic boat, and saying that it's going gonna, it's gonna to rain, and you're all going to be wiped out. And the neighbors laughing at him and abusing him, and he just keeps on building. Now, Hebrews says that he condemned the world by what he was doing, and yeah, there was a word of law that was being preached. Second Peter says he was a preacher of righteousness. Every nail he pounded was a sermon saying, I believe this word of God. There's going to be a flood. It is real. And I'm taking action today to see that, that come true, just as God has said. He saved his household and himself simply because he took God at his word and acted upon it. We come back to Abraham again in verse 8. By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. And by faith Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age. And she considered him faithful who had promised. 
Therefore, from one man, and him as good as dead, were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as many as the innumerable grains of sand by the seashore. There was the promise of the land and the promise of descendants. We've already talked a little bit about Abram's struggle with the promise about descendants, but think of the promise of the land. God said, go to this land and I'll let you walk through it, but you're never going to possess it. There was only one piece of land in in the Holy Land that, that he actually possessed, and that's when he bought a burial plot for his wife, Sarah. Otherwise, he spent the rest of his life wandering around in that wilderness, putting down tent pegs every so often, and moving to where there was um, grass for his, his sheep and his cattle. Well, what motivated this man? He, all he had to go on was the promise, this land is going to be, belong to you. It's going to belong to your descendants forever. This is, this is my promise to you. And so he went, and he pounded those pen, ten pegs again and again and again. And so did his sons Isaac and Jacob. Generation after generation, all they had to go on was a promise. Living in a tent isn't always fun. Pulling up stakes and moving every so often is an idea of a, of a permanent place to live. But he believed the promise. And it was as real for him as if it was happening right then and there. That land was his. God promised to give it to him. And he acted upon it. And the same with, with the descendants. Finally he got it through his head when, when uh, Isaac was born. It's real. Oh, and then think of the way in which God tested him on that one. Took him to the mountain and said, sacrifice your son, your only son, Isaac. And he got to the point where he had the knife over his head, ready to bring it down into Isaac's chest. Not knowing what was going to happen. How, how can the promise of God come true if I kill my son, my only son? How can it happen? But the knife was in his hand, ready to plunge it down. Because he believed the promise of God. And he acted upon it in faith. Wow. Maybe he was a hero. Could you do something like that? Is your faith that strong? Let's read on. These all died in faith. Not having received the things promised. But having seen them and greeted them from afar. And having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. As I said, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all died in faith without having received that promised land as their own. They spent the rest of their days living as exiles, sojourners. Peter uses the word aliens. 
What does it mean to be a sojourner or an exile or an alien? What is it like to be a missionary in a foreign land? Now, knowing that, that that's not your country. Those aren't your people. They don't have the same customs and habits that you have, but you live in the midst of these people, and you preach the gospel to them. That's, that's who we are, brothers and sisters. We are exiles. We are aliens. We are sojourners in this world because we have a promise, a promise of a far greater land. We have the promise of eternal life in heaven. So how do we live our lives today? What does it mean to be an alien? We look around at the world today and we wonder, what has happened? The world has changed. This isn't the world that I grew up in anymore. Those people don't believe what I believe they don't live the way I, I should live. They don't, they don't talk the same language that I talk anymore. I don't go to church. They don't believe in God. And here I am stuck in the midst of all of those people. I'm an alien. That's exactly right. If, if you take that outlook on life and recognize who you are, it, it will change the way you live. Not that you have to run and hide from those people and, and the things that they're doing. Here's an opportunity to speak the gospel to those people. They don't know. There are kids in Sunday, not in Sunday schools, in public schools today who have never heard the name Jesus. And you say, oh, that can't be. No, there are kids in public schools today who do not know Jesus. That's the land we live in, and there's the mission field that surrounds us today. So how do we live as Christians in the midst of this world that we don't get? By faith in the word of God, the promises that he made to us. We go about our lives with joy. We set an example. We wait for that opportunity when people ask us, why are you so different? Why do you talk the way you talk? Why do you, live? Why do you get up on Sunday mornings and go to worship? Because of the promises of God. I'm looking forward to something far better. My Lord Jesus has died for me. My sins are forgiven. God counts me as righteous and includes me as his own. And I want that for you too, brothers and sisters. Boom. And you have the opportunity to tell them about Jesus. That's why those guys were heroes of faith. They lived as they believed. That faith impacted their lives. They acted upon the promises of God. That's what faith is. And that's for you too. Amen? <laughs> okay, let's go to the gospel then. Luke 22, verses 22 through 40 Sometimes headlined with the words, don't be anxious. Oh, okay. We're talking faith and anxiety, worry, doubts, fears. You need to put this passage in its context as well. In the words just before this, Jesus told the crowd a parable. The parable about a good farmer who raised a bumper crop. 
And he looked at his bumper crop and he said, I've got all this stuff, where do I store it? So he started building bigger barns and bigger barns to store all of this abundance that he had. And then he said to himself, ah, oh, I've, got, I've got it made. Sound like people today? Eat, drink, and be merry. I've got it all. But that very night, his soul was required of him. And the parable that Jesus told ends with the words, he was rich in things, but he was not rich toward God. What does that mean to be rich toward God? What's the difference between being a believer and being this fool, as Jesus called him? So now he's on the side with his disciples, and he, he gives them a commentary on what that parable is really all about and the point that he's trying to make and how they're to live their lives. Re remember back in chapter 10 of Luke, he sent out 72 of them. He told them to go to all the places where he was about to go. He told them, don't take any supplies with you. No extra sandals, no money bag. Just go and proclaim the kingdom of God is near. And I'll take care of everything. And they went out with great joy, and they proclaimed Jesus. And then they came back, and Jesus said, yeah, you were so successful. I saw Satan fall from heaven. But don't rejoice in that. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So now he, he's speaking directly, not to the crowd, but to his disciples, those that he had instructed, don't take anything with you. Don't get hung up on things of this world. Don't become distracted. And he said to his disciples in verse 22, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? These words begin the commentary on the parable of the rich fool. And notice that there are ten imperatives that we'll, we'll see in this section. Ten commands that Jesus gives them. And the first, what is it, three of eight, first eight of them are on possessions. How can our possessions impact our faith? How can our faith impact our possessions? What was the problem with the rich fool and his possessions? He put his trust in those things. And Jesus is trying to say to his disciples, don't put your trust in those things. And so he begins, consider the ravens. How is a raven unlike a rich man? A rich man planned. He planted, he harvested, he built the barns, he stored up. How do ravens get their food? They're scavengers. They don't have nests where they store up all the food to last through the winter. They go about their lives each day, and God provides them every day with all that they need. 
So he says, consider the ravens. God feeds them. Are you not of more value than ravens? Then he asks, can anxiety add to your life? By worrying about it, can you live an extra year or two? Isn't that ridiculous? Because doctors are telling us now that it's anxiety and stress that shortens our lives. How many Americans today are on medication for anxiety or stress? What's wrong with our culture, our world around us? We've lost the promises of God. We don't live with the confidence that, he, that he's going to provide us each day our daily bread. Consider the lilies, he says, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. But if God so clothes the grass which is alive in the field today and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you? And here's the bite. O you of little faith. Do not seek what you're to eat and what you're to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom, and these things will be added to you. Solomon was known for the splendor and glory of his, his reign, but the lilies are more decked out than they are. Consider the lilies, consider the grass. In, in the Holy Land, there's a kind of ground cover, I guess you call it, that, that grows very quickly in the shallow soil, and it, it produces flowers that last about a day, and then they dry up. And the people go out and gather bunches of this, and they use this as the kindling to start their fires. How important is this, this grass, these flowers, if, if they live only a day long and then they're used for something as simple as, as kindling? Yet God adorns the hills of Israel with these beautiful flowers, with this grass. Aren't you more valuable than that grass? Aren't you decked out better than, than uh, those flowers? Even Solomon in all of his glory had to admire what God put out on the hillsides every day all around him. Seek his kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. And he would take our attention back to Israel in the wilderness and how, how they, they moaned and complained that there wasn't enough to eat, there wasn't water where they were traveling, and what did God do? He provided manna and quail. And everywhere they went, there was water. Their shoes never wore out. Their clothes never gave out. God took care of them all those years. They were wandering in the wilderness. Even though they had disobeyed God and worshipped the golden bull, and they, they had denied God's promises, and yet God in his mercy and grace kept dumping all this stuff on them. And they whined and complained. And what's Jesus' point when he says, you know, you're of more value than the, the birds. You're more of value than the grass. If God takes care of all of them, 
Won't he take care of you? There's a promise. Can you believe it? Can you live in such a way that says, I don't see how this is going to happen. I don't know where these extra bucks are going to come from to pay the bills this month. But God's promised he's going to take care of it. I'm going to live joyfully without worry. It's going to happen. Now, that doesn't mean be irresponsible, but trust, God's going to take care of it. It's as real as if it's happening right now. That's how God operates. The important thing in our lives, the number one priority, is the kingdom of God. And that's, that's really what Jesus is trying to teach his disciples here. The kingdom of God is central to your life. Don't worry about this, this other stuff. A few weeks ago, we heard the story of Mary and Martha. And what, was, what was the issue in, in the, the account of Mary and Martha? Martha was all worked up because she was trying her best to get everything ready to serve a meal to Jesus. A good thing. But lazy Mary just sat at his feet and listened to his word. Right? And what did Jesus say? Mary's chosen the good portion. See, it's, it's all about the word. Her priority was the word, the kingdom. Jesus is saying to us today, in faith, look at your priorities. Seek the kingdom first, and God will make sure that all these other things are added to you as well. Then he, he continues, verse 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches, no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Once again, we're back to the imperatives of the commands. Little flock, don't be afraid. And so he's, remember, he's talking to his disciples, and now he's addressing them in terms like, like the 23rd Psalm. The Lord's my shepherd. You're my people. I'm the good shepherd. I'll take care of everything. Follow me. Have no fear, little flock. For it's your father's good pleasure, not to give you all kinds of stuff, but what's the father's good pleasure to give you? The kingdom. It's all about the kingdom. So sell your possessions and give to the needy. That's a command, two commands. Provide for yourself money bags that don't grow old. What happens to a money bag when it grows old? Yeah. Book of Haggai talks about money bags with holes. What happens to a money bag with holes? You put the money in and it falls right through and disappears. <laughs> don't, don't get hung up with money bags that are old. You're just wasting your time and your money in doing it. Your treasure is in heaven and that won't fail. And nobody can take it away from you. And nobody can destroy it from you. And then verse 34, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So 
What's in your wallet? Where is your treasure? What are the things that are most important to you? My wife, my kids, my house, my reputation. Are those really the things that are most important? Are that, is that where my, my real treasure is? No. My treasure is in heaven. And once I've got that figured out, then all my other priorities fall into face place. Yes, all those things are important to me, but the kingdom of God is what's most important. And if I keep that first and foremost, if I make that my real treasure, then all these other things God blesses me with. And I can start looking at my possessions in a completely different way. God's kingdom comes first, and all these things will be added unto you, it says. What a promise. Remember the, the rich man in the parable? He wasn't rich toward God. The kingdom of God wasn't, wasn't first and foremost in his life. It was all his possessions, and Jesus called him a fool. So then this, it, it doesn't seem to fit. The whole imagery seems to change in verse 35. S stay dressed for action. Keep your lamps burning. Be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. For truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. You also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. And so here's the final commentary on the parable. What was the, pro the rich man's problem? He wasn't ready. He thought he was ready. He was collecting all this stuff, but he wasn't ready because he wasn't rich toward God. The kingdom wasn't foremost in his mind. His possessions were. And so it just makes sense that if a, a, a rich man goes away for a while and, and comes back, the, the servants had better be there awake and ready for him to return, right? Right? That's a servant's duty. Look at the twist here. They should be ready to serve him when he comes. And if he does come, when he does come, he has them recline at the table and he serves them. Right? And there, there is the ultimate of what we hope for, what we believe in. Our Lord Jesus is coming again. We are as servants, we need to be watchful and waiting. We need to have our priorities straightened out. We need to cling to his promises to us so that when he comes, he'll be serving us. We'll be the honored guests at his wedding feast in the joy of heaven. What motivates Christians today? Is it, is it fear that when Jesus comes back, he's going to nail us for all the sins that we've committed, for all of our doubts? It's a joy. When he comes back, he's going to be serving us. And so we can go about our lives, not with anxiety, not with fear, 
Now, with doubt, just taking God at his word, believing his promises, he's going to take care of everything in this world, and when he comes back, we're going to know joy that never ends. How do we live our lives in faith today? Enjoy. We just enjoy because the promises of God to us are all true. It changes our attitude toward everything. And so we go back to, to Hebrews. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. The conviction of things we can't even begin to see. But it changes who we are and how we live. Recognizing we're pleasing to God. What a, what a joyous way to live. By faith. Amen. You got it. Let's close. We pray, gracious God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would continue to keep us steadfast in faith, that we might know joy all the days of our lives in every struggle, every doubt, every fear. Lord, give us joy until that time when Jesus comes again, and we'll know joy that never ends. We pray these things in his holy name. Amen. Go in peace.